you're a young, nervous civilization about to send out its first deep space probe, you want to make sure whoever finds it is going to want to be your friend. And the best way to do that is to send a mixtape. Earth's Mixtape is the podcast where we dive into the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. One song at a time, one picture at a time, one whale song at a time. Welcome back to Earth's Mixtape. This is the podcast where we review the contents of the Voyager Golden Record. I'm Mike Dunlaby, and with me as always is... Roby Austin. And... Hannah Ayler. This episode, we'll be talking about musical selections from America and Papua New Guinea, as well as photos relating to human anatomy from the Golden Record Photo Archive. So let's begin. The first track we're going to talk about is track seven, titled Johnny Be Good. It runs two minutes, 39 seconds. Recorded, performed, and written by Charles Edward Anderson Berry. Charles Edward Anderson Berry. Better known as Chuck. Very, very, very well known as Chuck. <laughs> Much better well known as Chuck. I did quite a bit of digging around. I could not find out who the recording engineer was. <laughs> but I was rewarded by the name of the producer, which was Little Bongo Kraus. Oh, that's, that's a, a great, great name. name. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. And, and Bongo was in quotes, like that was the nickname. So Little, I, can't, I don't know if Little is part of the nickname or not. Maybe right. his father's big Bongo. That's exciting. So Western listeners would be familiar with this piece of music, I feel. It doesn't probably require any introduction. It's a Yeah, I would feel most Western listeners, for, for all the tracks on the record, for Western listeners at least, this would be the one that would be immediately recognizable as a song they've heard before. Yeah, it's a great piece of not exactly contemporary pop music but certainly well it's 1958 so it's more contemporary than Bach (laughs) but uh, released in 1958 so that will make next year the 60th anniversary of it some personnel on the recording uh, vocals and guitar Chuck Berry on piano Lafayette Leak on bass Willie Dixon and on drums, Fred Below. And those three guys are session musicians from Chess Records, where this was recorded. Fun fact, um, Chuck Berry said once that this song was initially inspired by his piano player, Johnny Johnson, um, before it developed into a song more or less about Chuck Berry himself. But uh, it was originally about his other piano player, and then the one on the recording isn't even the piano player that it was originally about, which was a little sad to me. Oh, that it becomes a song about a guitar player. He turned it into a song about himself, but it was initially inspired by his pianist, and then his pianist in the recording wasn't even the same pianist. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's interesting. This is so as this is a song from the beginning of the rock and roll era, like the mid to late fifties. And as rock and roll progressed, it became a genre of music that was dedicated to guitar heroes. I'm wondering if this is the first song. That was all about how great and lucrative it was to be a good guitar player. It was. It was the first hit about rock and roll stardom. So the musician getting his getting his start from a lowly life and working his way up to big lights. This was the first song um, about that. It certainly beats the Robert Johnson trope of having a hard life because you're a guitar hero. That's true. Um, but certainly uh, Johnny B. Good starts with a hard life. That's true. He comes out of the hard life into the good life. Yeah, he lives in a log cabin made of earth and wood. Mm-hmm. It's such a great lyric. 
It's such a great lyric. Like, hats off to that dude for using the word earth <laughs> instead of the word mud or dirt. I mean, it's just, it's good. It's interesting. The, the opening lyrics are kind of a, they're almost a, you're pressing plus on a Google map. <laughs> way down in Louisiana, plus down in New Orleans, plus way back up in the woods. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's it's like we're, z- we're we're zooming in from space onto uh, Johnny Be Good. Ooh, which <laughs> makes it a good choice for this record. Yeah, see, I, I did a thing there. I see. They should have started from the Milky Way galaxy and then worked their way down. You can write you can write prequel lyrics. Okay, perfect. The opening riff, arguably one of the most famous guitar riffs in rock music, but perhaps was inspired by an earlier song, Hannah. You might say inspired, you might say copied note for note. <laughs> Barry acknowledged his inspiration from it. So this was a song in 1946 by Louis Jordan titled Ain't That Just Like a Woman, which uh, I would not recommend listening to. The lyrics aren't as beautiful as a little log no, cabin made of earth and it's wood. Not, they're not good things about women. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an example or do you want to just... No, I don't remember. We'll just... I tried to forget. Fair enough. Yeah, let's Fair not enough. traumatize anybody. <laughs> I said it was recorded at Chess Records, who signed Chuck Berry after being recommended by Muddy Waters. High recommendation. Yep. Chess Records was based out of Chicago, where they recorded a lot of the early Chicago blues artists. So it's it's a great song. I, I think it plays into note that Hannah made on a previous episode, that if you were walking down a uh, <laughs> alien spaceship and you were hearing music in the background... Echoing uh, through the corridors. Echoing through the corridors, hearing Johnny Be Good would be kind of fun. Also, it's in Back to the Future, so and it's in Back to the Future, to yeah, uh, where it was discovered by Chuck's cousin Marvin, Marvin Berry and the Starlighters. Yeah. So sorry, I just had to do some uh, mental arithmetic because, of course, Back to the Future came out in the eighties, nineteen eighty-five. But then, it, sometime after it came out, like a good number of years after it came out, it would have been broadcast on broadcast television, and so this song will be one that reaches the uh, in the broadcast like by the amazing medium of uh, electromagnetic uh, waves it will reach the outer reaches of the galaxy before the golden record but then they'll be like oh i love this song but it, but it would have been on on radio in the 50s oh excellent so point so it was it was out into the out into space a good 30 years before that so they'll be well familiar with it be is well what we're saying which helps it's part of the reason why we love songs. So if I can be allowed a tangent for a second. There, there, Chuck Berry wrote four sequel songs to Johnny Be Good, titled Bye Bye Johnny, Go Go Go, Johnny Be Blues, and Lady Be Good, oh. um, none of which were as popular as Johnny Be Good. But I love sequel songs, and I think that's it's, it's amazing how many great songs, especially the 50s and 60s, have horrible sequels. He also wrote four songs involving the character Johnny B. Good, and he put them together in an album in 1969 titled Concerto in B. Good. On the subject of, this, of the sequel song, I, I looked up some other ones, which I found fascinating, and I would like to mention them. Just uh, random sequels to other songs? Sequels or? to other songs. Okay. So so I, probably the most famous would be Chubby Checker did The Twist, and then a year later did Let's Twist Again. But in more horrible examples, <laughs> the Royal Guardsmen in 1966 did Snoopy versus the Red Baron, and then followed that up with The Return of the Red Baron, Snoopy's Christmas, Snoopy for President, and then came out 40 years later with Snoopy versus Osama. Oh, God. Um... <laughs> And 
in, in a similar note, Bobby Boris Pickett in 1962 had the hit Monster Mash, still hear, heard on radios today every Halloween, followed it up with Monster's Holiday, Monster's Swim, uh, those were all 62, 62, 64, and then came back 20 years later in 1984 with Monster Rap. <laughs> I bet that's... It's, I want to hear that. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm sorry, Boris Bobby Pickett, if you're listening. But you had one great song that will live on in, in, uh, in, for years and years. Anyway, I, just, I, I, I went down a research hole on sequel songs and wanted to mention it. I'm going to be listening to Monster Rap tonight. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so anything else about Johnny Be Good? Well, I, so we can talk about its choice on the record. I think it's an excellent choice for the beginnings of what it has been uh, the most widespread musical movement of the whole world now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the fact that we've got K-pop and, well, there's pretty much rock and roll music everywhere, coming from everywhere. Yeah. Uh, original, and real, yeah, genre rock and roll coming from every continent, every country. Yeah. and seeing rock versions, like other cultures produce rock versions of their cultural songs. That's right. That's right. It, their, their rock and roll takes this tradition and moves it into into their tradition. So it's, it's, yeah, I think it's a good choice. There's one line in Murmurs of Earth about this song that I kind of want to quote, because I'm not entirely sure what it means. Uh-oh. Quote, But Barry himself, after a spate of writing that lasted only a few years, showed a lack of interest in innovation commensurate to that of the Homeric bards. What the blazes? I, I, I'm not quite sure what that means. It starts as a statement that he stopped writing innovative music, but then compared that to the Homeric bards in a sort of out-of-left-field reference that I'm not quite sure I track. Yeah. It's I wonder. Li- it's a slightly pretentious statement. <laughs> just, just a tiny, tiny bit. Maybe they were starved of affectation as a child. Oh, that's a good line. Thank you. It's Tom Stoppard. Mm-hmm. It's true that a lot of Chuck Berry music sounds like a lot of Chuck Berry music, but... You know, there are other writers for whom I would say that that is a part of their art. So I think it's hard to say that about Chuck Berry. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of artists who have a sound and that, that whose sound you can identify to the artist. And I would say very, very, very few of them were as influential or as groundbreaking as what Chuck Berry was doing. And indeed, for those of our audience who've never watched a, a film of Chuck Berry performing... Uh, I imagine that by the time he finished performing any song, he was so exhausted he couldn't possibly come up with something new and amazing. Like he was just—he was an amazing yeah. dancer and performer in general. Yeah, and there is that documentary from the '80s, uh, Chuck Berry Hail Hail Rock and Roll, <laughs> where you can see him perform with many other other people who are influenced by him. He does not come off as a nice man. We also don't require—I mean, there's three pieces of Bach on here, and and I. It's hard to find people who say that Bach was a sweetie. So is this the latest or the most recent piece of music on the golden record? I believe so. But wait, that bird song from last week was like 1962. Recorded in, not necessarily. But it was the, we, we believe it to have been composed by those three people. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's true. I, uh, think, okay. I think it was more of a traditional song that was recorded. So it's, this definitely isn't the latest recording, but written in 1955. Well, 
I'll do a bit of research and come back on that. Okay. Um, my guess is that it is the most recent written, but uh, that might require having a lot more information on the pieces that are presented as traditional, uh, where they don't provide or more enter, information yeah. on that. Yeah. Okay, with that said, let's move on to the photos. Talk about uh, photos 18 through 25. Pictures 18 through 23 are copyright 1978 of the World Book from Childcraft International Incorporated. And pictures 24 and 25 come from Life, Cells, Organisms, and Populations by E.O. Wilson, copyright Sinauer Associates. And Hannah, do you want to talk about what's in these photos? So these are all anatomy pictures. So in the first two pictures we have... I guess you can call them cross-sections of the human body. Yeah, it's human anatomy. Yeah. Yeah. So the first two are from about the thigh up to the top of the head you're seeing. Um, And you can see one and a half arms in each picture. Um, We've got mostly, I think, just the skeletal and muscular systems going on here. So you can kind of see um, half of the body is covered in the muscular system. Just in case you haven't gathered that so far from the description... These are kind of gross. They're not, you know, photographs or anything, but they're not they're not for people like me who don't like to see squishy stuff. Yeah, they're 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 if if anyone listening is familiar with anatomy textbooks, there's always a section with like acetate overlays where you can put layer by layer of the person in. They're they're basically yeah, versions of that. Yeah. Except they're not quite separated by the systems. Which would be more normal. Right. And kind of bugs me a little. And why do they cut off that arm? Um I think the picture they're taking them from are are long and narrow, the oh, images, so it's they just don't have the whole thing. But it definitely, it's not cut off in this picture. Like, there's a lot of blank space to the side of where the arm's cut off that you could have yeah. an arm here. So I think it's could well, be confusing to the OSPs. And they are showing front and back. And because human anatomy has a bilateral symmetry. It might be a way of reinforcing that picture 19 is the flip over from picture 18. Oh, I see. Introducing chirality. Introducing mm. chirality by Sneaky. lopping off an arm. <laughs> and picture 18 is com- almost like a, a microtone slice, like you can see the brain. But the picture from the back, you can see the whole skull. Um, so it's like more of the exterior is seen in 19 than in 18. And then the next two, I honestly don't know what these are. <laughs> they look like there's some lungs and a heart and some other squishy bits, but I was spent a good portion of my morning looking up uh, human body systems because I haven't taken biology in at least eight years. So, um, and they're not; these pictures are not just one system. You've got the heart, you've got the lungs, you've got some things that I don't know what they are, but I... Yeah, and that squishy bits. And that kind of continues into 22 and 23 where it looks like they might be trying to show the digestive and circulatory and maybe even the nervous system. Definitely in picture 23. Picture 23 was actually encoded in color on the record to show they claim the difference between veins and arteries. So the veins and arteries were colored blue and red. I'm not entirely mm-hmm. sure that the OSPs, the outer space people could put together from this, the difference between yeah, the Yeah, there's not artery. even like a diagram of the heart or anything like that. 
No, no, there's not. There's just, it just looks like a fl- fuzzy blob in one of the images, but you don't really have the veins or arteries coming from it to put that together. So most unusually for me, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. So the people choosing these had already witnessed or experienced a backlash for putting detailed images of humanity on something destined for outer space. Oh, the, the pioneer plaque, the, the naked pipples. That's... <laughs> Thank you for the adult rendering of what they sent. Uh, So perhaps on this occasion, they decided not to send something that was truly pedagogical. They just, they wanted to send the information, uh, but not like an instruction manual on how the heart works or can be made to stop working. Is that, no, but now you're about to tell me about how it's like, there's the picture after this one has a big arrow that says <laughs> stab <"Stab here." laughs> a bullseye um, well like the pioneer plaque where they did get in trouble for sending pictures of naked people um, in picture 25 none of, the, none of these photos really show um, human genitalia and in picture 25 they, on top of the picture they got out of the anatomy textbook um, they drew uh, gendered symbols uh, to represent um, gender difference. Which, of course, uh, everybody reading will instantly understand. Yes, and it, but it will also play into the next series of photos. Tune in next episode, everyone, when we <laughs> talk about uh, the next series of photos, which is all about human reproduction. So it kind of segues into that. Oh, I, I have one other thing to say about uh, these pictures. I mean, there's lots, but... Uh, one thing I would like to say as a sort of general piece of information for our long, younger listeners, World Book was a thing called an encyclopedia. It's like, <laughs> it's like before there was the internet, the only sources of like huge quantities of general knowledge were these kind of uh, series of books called encyclopedias. So this is why in the 1970s, before the World Wide Web became what it is now today, they would have gone to an encyclopedia for some of their pictures. Just to just to fill you in, I believe World Book still has a website, but it's probably no longer <laughs> relevant. This is like they Googled it and got the images that came up on Google. So one interesting thing about these photos, possibly the only interesting thing about these photos, you'll <laughs> notice if you look at them, the, the peop, all the bits have these black dots all over them. And those black dots are from the fact that because this is from an encyclopedia or a textbook, all of these photos, all of the parts were numbered, and those numbers would tie into a catalog list of, you know, this is the heart, this is the lung, this is the... Yeah, figure captions. They're useful. (laughs) Figure captions are useful for us, maybe not for the OSPs, but anyway, they tasked Linda Sagan, who was an artist, with painting them all out. So she took all of the acetate diagrams, painted out all the numbers so you didn't see them and then after painting them all out the paint came off immediately oh no leaving these little black dots and that's why uh all of this anatomy is covered in what look like tumors (laughs) yeah that's why you start earlier than a few months before i guess you start when you can fair enough fair enough my comment about these is because they're not organized by system or they're not organized by, it's almost a, by geography. But anyway, it's not even that. It does just look like a flayed person. And what? Uh... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Too soon. 
Uh, no, no, just I wasn't ready for it. The, um, also, why not have a bit of juxtaposition? Why not have the, the figure of the person standing next to a picture of a human standing in the same position? So it would be obvious what this is. Right, because the only images of humans before this have been... I don't think we have had pictures of humans No, we yet. just got through chemistry. Oh, good and grief. The DNA. And there's no reason to... I mean, the aliens are going to have all the photos. So the, right, the, they, the sequence is arbitrary in a sense. That's right. We're reading it in the in uh, Western order. From we're reading it in the order that they've been encoded on the record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But again, why not? That, that couldn't have been too hard. And in fact, I think even later on, maybe towards even one of the last pictures, there is a photo of a woman holding up her hand next to an x-ray of a hand. TTH scale, threat to humanity scale for these photos? <laughs> Pretty high. I, 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 the, the, the previous comment of a big arrow with the stat here uh, <laughs> immediately comes to mind. Uh, like These are all important bits that don't want to be stabbed or irradiated or electrocuted. But that's kind of true of most of our bits. I guess so. I mean, I certainly don't want any of my bits stabbed or irradiated <laughs> or electrocuted today. It's true. Stab any part of me, and I probably won't like it. Unless, of course, you're a doctor and you're performing surgery, or you're using electroshock th- treatment for a wonderful thing, or you're using radiation therapy to cure my cancer. In all of those cases, which I am not asking you to do today, it's probably okay. So you invent interstellar travel. You Thanks. Invent, you invent faster than light travel. You, 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 but you take that first trip, but it's not a healthy experience. You end up feeling pretty uh, low. Oh, yeah, you get all of the space diseases. And you're found by OSPs who ha- had previously found the golden record. <laughs> are you, are you, and all they have to go by of your anatomy are these photos because they don't have x-ray machines or MRIs or anything like that. <laughs> of course they don't because they're not trying to figure out human anatomy. They, they could never Yay. fit in the machine. Well, their skin doesn't have that watery property. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're not mostly water. They're, yeah, they're a mixture of gas and electricity. So my next oh, comment my was going to be... <laughs> <laughs> we're, we are found by Pokemon. <laughs> in space. Well, okay, so I know so little about Pokemon, but I guess this isn't the moment for me to learn more. What, what I was originally going to say was... But I have a question for Hannah that I need to come back to. Go ahead. <laughs> In answer to your question, what I know about my experience of life is that if the alien looked like Spock or indeed possibly Pokemon, I don't know, like a, a, a Pikachu, I might say, oh, you're my friend. <laughs> Therefore, I trust you. But if they looked like a grizzly bear, I might feel a little bit more like they were just trying to get to my squishy bits. Right. Psychology, man. It's not my specialty. <laughs> So, so a Pikachu, you would you would feel comforted by if it operated on you. But I don't know if they've got those little stubby arms. Like I said, I don't I don't know much about their uh, like I don't know if they're easily distractible or anything. But. Okay, here, I'm going to ask Hannah my question because I think Hannah is more knowledgeable about Pokemon than <laughs> than us. Certainly than me. Uh, you're 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 on Poke Planet. You're, okay. you're you're desperately ill. Which Pokemon do you want to operate on you? Oh, Mr. Mime has fingers. He's the most humanoid-looking one. And which would you be the most horrified to see walking into the operating room with a mask over its face? Probably also a Mr. Mime. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Are there healing pe- uh, Pokemon? Oh, oh, I think the Chansey are the nurse Pokemon. Oh. They're the ones who carry around an egg in their stomach. So it's maybe like nurse in the Yeah, they're always the nurses. Sense. It's not the only lady Pokemon, is it? No. Okay. No. You can have any Pokemon be any gender. Okay. But no, the Chanseys are always the nurses. 
So yeah, probably actually. Good point. All right. Uh, so I don't know the answer to your question. Uh, although I suppose if I were dying, I'd either die faster or slower. So I guess I should rationally choose to go with the operation. And your legacy as the inventor of faster than light travel would live forever. Of course, until somebody uh, used it to go back in time and kill me and no. claim the invention as their own. Yeah, and perform Johnny Be Good for the first time. going to talk about the second musical track of the episode. The next track is track eight, titled Men's House Song from Papua New Guinea. Runs one minute, 26 seconds, recorded by Robert McClellan. That's all the information I could find in Murmurs of Earth. And a little bit of extra research I did yielded a movie review from a online journal called Ethnomusicology. And this is from an article in volume 26, number one, pages 191 to 193. That's a film review of a documentary about the music of Papua New Guinea called Namakas Music in Lake Chambri, which gave extra information that this piece was recorded in December 1962 in Kilimbit on Chambri Lake. It includes the sentence, a recording of paired flutes called Amia Amagio. I don't know if that means the piece is called Amagio or if the paired flutes are called Amagio. So I'm going to assume that means it's the title of the piece. Uh, it's a sample of ancient tribal music played on two large hardwood horns. They, the piece begins and ends with uh, an almost alto-type uh, bit of melody. Uh, in between, there is a repeated theme that plays over and over in slightly different ways every time. This one increases in tempo as it goes along too, doesn't it? It seems to, yeah. Um, I thought that was stressful. <laughs> <laughs> it, it certainly started a lot more mellow. I mean, it, in, yeah. in general, it didn't have the, the joyful, happy feeling of the Menarche song we heard earlier that was from a completely different part of the world, but it was at least the women's... It was a girl's house song or something. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a song sung by girls who were sharing the... the so I guess the, the moral of the story is that I would rather be a young woman coming of age in, to hear at any rate, to experience the auditory soundscape of a young woman coming of age in the Republic of Congo than I would in be a young man in Papua New Guinea. Well, and this isn't necessarily music played by young men. Oh, this it's is, just in the man's house. This sorry. is... This is the, the research I was able to do talked about how Papua New Guinea traditionally is a very patriarchal society. All the men would live in one place and all the women would live in another. And the men's houses were bigger than the women's houses. They sure were. And uh, they would play this kind of music almost as a status symbol. Like this is a, a, a celebration of the, the big man, the chief and the things he owned and his control over what is referred to uh, as the yam-pig economy. So they would, they would farm yams and raise pigs or hunt pigs. And um, the larger the community, the larger the collection of men and the more powerful the chief, the more elaborate these celebrations would become where they would play music in the men's house. Um, and they would play on the, on the horns, which were never to be played by women. And in fact, um, women were discouraged from even looking at them. Oh. They were seen as symbols of maleness. 
Well, now I have a guess of what they look like. Uh, your guess is correct, because <laughs> I also did a Google image search of it, and that is all I will say about that. This, this was one of the pieces that was brought to the committee by Al Lomax, who was a big fan of this type of music. Uh, he mentioned that he saw an analogy, not an influence, but an analogy between this music and uh, some of the music that would come out of New Orleans, where there would be um, houses set aside for men uh, that would produce this kind of music. And uh, this was, this New Orleans uh, men's lodge music was where uh, Louis Armstrong came out of. That's where Louis Armstrong spent time as a young man. And that's just an analogy Lomax came up with. I'm not speaking to its uh, credibility, but he's a pretty smart guy and seems worth mentioning. One thing about Robert McLennan, who was the fellow who recorded this, he seemed to have been a professor at the University of Queensland. I love the fact that long after I'm dead, somebody may see, say, she seems to have been a professor. <laughs> well, <clears throat> he was definitely a professor. I'm not entirely sure he was a professor at the University of Queensland, but the University of Queensland, Queensland has an online anthropology museum. And if you go to that website, you can see hundreds, if not thousands, of pictures uh, taken by McClellan from his time in Papua New Guinea, as well as pictures of items he collected from the cultures there. So my limited knowledge of Papua New Guinea uh, is mostly to do with birds of paradise and my understanding of gentlemen Papua New Guinea men. Uh, is that they adorn themselves with the feathers of birds of paradise, uh, partly to show how great they are and partly to show how manly they are. I did see mention that Papua New Guinea um, is one of the most culturally diverse oh, yeah. areas. Like it, within within its borders, there's over 800 languages. Holy moly! Um, yeah, it's incredible. And, yeah, you, you need the right geography for that. That must be it. It's it's lots of coast. Volcanoes, I, I think. Isolated valleys, lots of uh, isolated river, river valleys. So it gets very difficult for tribes, people to get from one valley to another. So they don't encounter each other and they don't share language. And there's a lovely David Attenborough story about going in the 1970s, I think. Could have been the 1960s, though. Anyway, there's a lovely story about him going, uh, looking for a tribe in... Papua New Guinea, who had not been previously contacted by anybody outside of the neighboring tribes, and even the neighboring tribes didn't know them. They just sort of said, oh yeah, there's this other group. Seems presumptuous. Well, it was, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, there, was a, there was going to be mining activity, I think, was oh, okay. the plan, and so they had to go in and... and uh, Document. Well, just say hello, I suppose. Please yeah. don't kill us. It didn't go well. They did find people who they couldn't communicate with. Then those people disappeared into the woods. In, if you happen to find yourself in Papua New Guinea <laughs> and you are wondering what wisdom David Attenborough can provide you <laughs> in communicating with them, uh, the trick, apparently, is to ask them, it's to in some way to communicate with them that they should count on their hands or count visually because different language groups will apparently have related uh, ways of counting. So if you count by one finger one, finger two, finger three, finger four, compared to if you count by touching your wrist, touching your elbow, touching your shoulder, etc. Right. There's uh, you can you can identify language groups in this way in Papua New Guinea. 
maybe, if I have understood David Attenborough's story correctly. Sounds like David Attenborough should have been consulted on the Golden Record. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Familiar with different cultures and their means of communication. Absolutely. Damn. But they, they maybe didn't know in 1977 what an incredible treasure he would even I mean he, he obviously had, had he may not have had that cross Atlantic appeal yet yeah they may not have yet shown life on earth yeah. in America did you like this piece would you listen to this piece the increasing tempo stressed me out right so not particularly yeah I gotta admit it didn't brighten my heart what's the phrase that we're looking for uh, touch the brain as well as the heart uh, it, was, it was more touching my brain than my heart yeah I think I, I think I would agree with that But, you know, taste is taste. Taste is taste. I'm sure Alan Lomax would disagree. Thanks for listening to Earth's Mixtape. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Please rate and review us on iTunes, and maybe we will read your name on a future episode. Reviews will help people find out about the podcast, and maybe tell your friends about us. This week, we'd like to thank Dr. Sam Colosimo and Dr. Alice Gorman, who are among the many people who have tweeted about the show. Dr. Gorman, we hope we represented your good work accurately in our last episode. Did we make a mistake or an omission? Heck yeah, we did. Let us know all about it on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Earth's Mixtape. Or email us at earthsmixtape at gmail.com. Earth's Mixtape is produced at St. Mary's University in beautiful Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada.